Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. I'm Ben. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we unpick the boundary review and you ask us, what would Labour do to make wages fairer? As it's a quieter political week this week, I can see Rachel smiling. Yes, <laughs> I did go away for the autumn statement and came back for the first quiet week in politics this year. You look Sorry so about healthy. That. <laughs> um, we thought we'd we'd sort of zero in on something a bit geekier, but very important, which is the boundary review. Um, we've had the same constituency boundaries now since 2010 for all the parliamentary elections. Um, and boundary commissions just seem to be that thing that never happens, like in 2013 and 2018. They were supposed to go through, but they never did. Yeah, it's been like this mythical land that all, that all of <laughs> yes. Parliament is... The parallel to... universe that we can <laughs> yeah. never quite reach. You know, ooh, the boundary review, it will, it will happen someday soon. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's on now and we know where all of the new boundaries are probably likely to be. Yeah. And we're starting to get a feel for where all the bun fights that go with it within, <laughs> within different political parties will be also. Yeah, because we've got this new legislation that means there will be boundary reviews every eight years mm. and the next one will be confirmed next year, although, as you say, the boundaries have been drawn up and the number of parliamentary seats will stay at 650 because there was that plan under David Cameron to try and reduce them to mm. 600, but obviously that's just far too difficult to do. Yes, and it gets split by population, basically, yeah. and we, you have seats in the north which will kind of expand for example because you've seen you know people go to live in some of the larger cities and then you'll get extra constituencies in the more populated urban areas it's generally thought that the boundary review overall will benefit the conservatives more than it will labor just because of how it how the population levels break down but i actually think ben's done the most work on um on constituency boundaries yeah, of anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and luckily we do have him here, Ben. I mean, I was reading some analyses of these new seats or the sort of remapping of the of the of the political map. And one analysis said the Tories would actually gain thirteen seats from this, and Labour would lose eight. And that's because a lot more seats are being made in the south because of that demographic change that Rachel was talking about. Will it really be that bad? And is there more going on under the surface? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me as well. This is the thing. 13 more Conservative seats. I estimate between 8 and maybe 15 more. It, it, it depends on how you do what we call notional results. You know, trying to guess how these seats would vote on new boundaries is a little bit difficult, to be fair. The new seats mostly come in this, the commuter belt. Commuter belt. 
Okay, and what 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 do you what do you expect there? What that means is seats on the last boundaries on the elections of nineteen, seventeen, fifteen, ten have to, have just basically become too large. So really, that they need they need shrinking in geographic size because there's too many people there. And what that means is places such as Wickham in Buckinghamshire, places such as the south of Swindon in Wiltshire, they were once quite you know they had quite rural bits. Now they've become quite urban. And what does that mean? On paper, they're still conservative, but they have a lot more marginal. So, so the boundary changes, yes, they're necessary. And, and for those listening that think it's uh, gerrymandering, it's not. It's done by an independent body. It's not partisan. You don't need to. It, this isn't America. Thank goodness for that, because they are absolutely <laughs> terrible over there. No, really, it's completely neutral. It's good. It, it, it occasionally gets submissions for, from local people, although here in Chester, our seat is cut up right down the middle, which annoys uh, a great many of us here. Yeah, the net benefit is, a, is in the Conservatives' favour, but it reflects the reality, which is that there are just a lot more commuter seats in England that need reflecting. And it's worth bearing in mind as well, is that the boundaries that we currently fight the elections on overrepresent Welsh and Scottish MPs. There are more Wales and Scotland seats than there are as a share of the population, if that makes mm. sense. This boundary of you sort of reverts that to know if your share of the population equals you know, your share of the seats. Something to bear in mind, I know, I know I'm going on a tangent here, but something that we often forget is that these, these seats are constructed according to voters, not people, not people in the seats. So if you live in London, if you're an MP in London, you are going to have a very large migrant population that can't vote and don't go into the equation, but, you know, you'll have 80,000 voters, and, but you'll probably have about 100, 120, 130,000 people living there. And what that means is you'll have a lot more casework you know, if you're an urban London MP or an urban MP with a lot of migrants, a lot of people who don't vote, you have a lot more casework than, say, a seat like Chester. Really. Yes. Yeah. So interesting, the different seats. I mean, all of us will have done those kind of articles where you go around with an MP around their constituency and they're so different, aren't they? You know, talking about those inner city urban seats that you just mentioned, the amount of work in those and the nature of the work is so different. But then you go to seats like, I remember Copeland during the Copeland by-election, which is just this absolutely enormous constituency. And so the work of actually getting around it for an MP, that's quite hard, even if the casework perhaps isn't as intense as, say, in Tottenham, for example. And as a journalist who doesn't actually have a driving licence, I ran up a lot of taxi bills covering that by-election for the New Statesman. So yeah, sorry, finance. (laughs) But are there any seats that you're looking out for? Because I, I, I was having a look through them and there are some that are quite interesting. Bristol Central is is causing a lot of excitement among the Green Party. It looks like it could probably be a surefire thing for Carla Denyer, who is a co-leader of the Green Party. That's her patch. And, you know, that would be quite a good thing for the Greens because they would double their number of parliamentary seats if they won that one. And then you can see a few others. It looks like the Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross's seat of Murray could turn SNP. Maybe that's and, why he's standing down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and this can have all sorts of political implications in terms of politicians' decisions. Tim Farron, you know, for a former Lib Dem leader's seat to Westmoreland and Lonsdale could go Conservative, and then of course, talking of former leaders, there's Uxbridge and South Ryslip, which is a outer London seat that's undergone a lot of demographic change anyway. Boris Johnson's seat, and that I mean, I grew up near there, and Northolt 
could be added to that seat, which is a Labour town. And that could make it even more likely that that seat goes Labour next time around. But I'd be interested in hearing from both of you what's caught your eye. Oh, my God, there's, there's, there's tons. And to be honest, everything you say is actually interesting. There's, there's been a development, right? This is the thing. Boundary changes go through multiple reviews. So there's a bunch of sessions. The Boundary Commission puts out, you know, their proposals, and then they let the public have their opinion, which is often this is absolutely SHI, you know, go on so forth. It's terrible. Tim Farron's Westmoreland and Lon- Lonsdale seat, that, it was absolutely killed off. And then, after a great deal of complaints from the locals and, indeed, Mr Farron himself, the seat is basically saved. He's okay, just about, I think. Now, okay. Bristol Central is the exciting one, I think, because the Greens do really well locally there. The local organisers I speak to sort of concede that Labour doesn't make as much of an effort in the local elections because they've, they've sort of conceded the wards to the Greens already. Now, in Bristol Central, for those who don't know Bristol that well, before the seat was called Bristol West and included basically the train station a little bit to the east of that and then the entirety of the west going up to the uh, the, the bridge. What's the bridge name? I forget the name. I'm, I'm, I've only been to Bristol once, but you know what I mean. Anyway, what, what Bristol Central is now, even though it's quite western, is it's just entirely represented by green councillors. And that, that yeah. poses some trouble for, for Thangam Debonair, who, to be fair, has a stonking majority, even in 2019 as well, after the uh, Labour surge in 17. So honestly... I don't know. I wouldn't say shooing because the thing is, Debonair is quite popular. Debonair has a profile there. And when she stands down, then I think it's up for grabs. I, d- I just don't know. But yes, definitely want to watch. Ben Wallace, he represents a seat which right now is called Weir and Preston North. That gets carved up between Ribble Valley and uh, Lancaster and Weir. And Lancaster and Weir risks becoming quite a bit of a battleground. That's currently, uh, is it Cat Smith, who's the MP for Lancaster and Fleetwood, yeah, I think? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, she she could be in a spot of trouble because her seat, instead of being more urban, becomes a bit more rural. So there's a bit of trouble for there, absolutely. Swindon South, another one to watch out for because it becomes a lot more urban. That is Robert Buckland's seat. It's a bit of a tough fight because it's one of those commuter bill, one of those uh, consumer-type seats that... um, did swing Labour quite, quite, quite starkly in the local elections of May this year. We definitely want to watch there. Um, the Lib Dems could cause a bit of a surprise in, in Kent of all places. Maidstone was once very rural, quite a rural seat. Now becomes a lot more urban. Maidstone and uh, Malling. Labour could make a bit of a comeback in, in, in the Isle of Thanet of all places. The seat Nigel Farrell once stood there. <laughs> the instead of North Thanet, South Thanet becomes East Thanet which is basically just Ramsgate through to Margate, the very urban built-up bits. But that is, according to people on the ground, really dependent on the Labour campaign actually getting its act together. Occasionally, often doesn't. No, there's definitely tons to watch out for. It makes things a lot more exciting because we're, we're fighting on new new boundaries. What else can I say, really? Wales, it, there's not much to say. In Scotland, yes, Douglas Ross, basically, his seat is gone in Murray. The SNP benefit. From the boundary changes in Scotland, the Lib Dems lose one in Caithness and, and I think North East 5 too, but only by the slimmest of margins. Yeah, it's it's exciting, I think. Well, it's exciting to me. I don't know if it's like, exciting to <laughs> listeners and my colleagues. It is. It is. But I'm glad you mentioned about Labour getting its act together because, Rachel, you had some detail in one of your recent pieces about how there is still some expectation that there could yet be a snap election and so Labour haven't redistributed their organisers around the new boundaries yet. Yeah, it was kind of a peculiar little development at NEC this week. The National Executive Committee of Labour's main ruling body. So they had some months ago decided to start organising all of their activists around these new 
boundary changed constituencies, but have now delayed that until the summer on the sort of outside chance that it could all fall apart for Rishi Sunak and they end up having to go for a snap election. Whereas I kind of think previously when Sunak first got into the role, that was, you know, not considered to be a prospect. Yeah, a prospect at all. But yeah, it's still being factored in there, which makes me slightly nervous. Mm. And, how, <laughs> and how else is the looming boundary commission affecting political decisions you mentioned sort of Douglas Ross's decision to stand down for example and also that there can be bun fights even between those in the same party over yeah. the new patches that appear yeah I mean you can see it everywhere you look really Labour's selection process is complicated by the fact that it's becoming controversial for a number of reasons yeah but yeah when you look across the Conservative Party as well you'll see a number of MPs standing down because they think well you know I don't fancy my chances especially not looking at the polls so yeah I think you'll see it play out in greater detail in the few months in the few months ahead yeah. okay great thank you so much both that was i think that was a really good whip round the new boundaries and will of course be visiting all of these new seats in due course one thing i did want to ask you about quickly before we move on to the second section ben is i noticed on your map there's this weird sort of exclave in cambridge it's the nagorno karabakh of, of the fens will these kind of little strange nobules which split constituencies up be sort of ironed out before the final commission is decided? Probably, probably <laughs> not. The Boundary Commission say they take submissions from residents, but they have been. this was included. Right, OK, for those who don't know, Cambridge has its own seat and surrounded to the north east of it is East Cambridgeshire. And if you know where Cambridge North train station is, let's let's assume you do, <laughs> there's a sewage works next to it, OK? Now, Cambridge North train station, which is north of the sewage works, is in the Cambridge city seat. But south of the station is a sewage works, which is in East Cambridgeshire. And it's not connected to East Cambridgeshire at all, save for a little river, which is a little bit odd. There's another one as well. Chris Bryant's seat in the Ronda takes in this tiny little, this, this weird shape. I asked him, like, are you going to object to that? And he said, nah, don't bother. Why? <laughs> What's the point? Like, it's done. It's done. He was very dry when he, when he gave that answer. Yeah, there's a lot of things like this that get thrown up. It's the reality of trying to build boundaries based on some pretty strict rules. I, I, I object to the rules quite strongly. I don't, I don't, I think you're trying to, you're trying to build these representative decent seats using huge wards, like, mm. you know, 18,000. And you, you, you've got, you're setting yourself a rule, 65,000 voters to 75. That's how big the seat should be. Okay. And there are some wards that are as big as 18, 20, 25. You can't really build decent seats out of that. But it's, it's happening. What can we do? <laughs> Spoken like a man who has wearily been through every <laughs> permutation of these new seats. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Let's move on to the next section. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. (laughs) 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Today, our question is from an anonymous listener who we like to believe is a woman who asks, how would Labour solve the wage crisis? So I think this is probably a reference both to uh, various workers going on strike, but also what they would do when they come into power to make wages fairer. The latest news on this is that more than 10,000 ambulance workers have voted to go on strike. Yeah, I mean, God, it's just kind of like really hard to keep up with just how many people are going on strike now. I've mm. noticed that sort of when we send the morning email that I'll get I'll get quite a few out of office replies saying, "Oh hi, I'm not here today because I'm taking industrial oh, really? industrial action." Yeah. So what we have nurses, ambulance staff. Oh God, it's just like the list is so long. What would Labour do about Lil Pay? I mean. Their position is not really a position at all, <laughs> as, is, as is quite often the case with Labour. They're not recommending any kind of particular percentage when it comes to sort of individual employers. They kind of say, you know, it goes to a peer review body. Their position is kind of like, well, you should pay nurses properly. And I mean, like, that could mean a million different things, right? Yeah. But they do have quite a good policy on the minimum wage, which they say is kind of aimed at tackling structural low pay and it asks the low pay commission basically to peg the minimum wage to the cost of living basically and it also and this is kind of the interesting bit of the policy for me I think it also extends the blanket rate to younger workers to sort of 18 to 22 year olds so that that's supposed to tackle where low wages start basically at the beginning of someone's career and that's an an element that the government would have control over you know setting the, the national minimum wage yeah so that's their response. But when it comes to sort of strikes and all the ones that we're seeing, they don't have a very hard and fast position on a particular rate that they would give to, say, nurses or, say, to ambulance workers. Mm. And I suppose that position does make sense sort of practically because they're not in the negotiations that there does have to be a pay review body process. But it makes it difficult in those short radio interviews when they'll say well the government should be helping nurses not have to use food banks and they say well how much would you pay them and they don't have an answer and it does bring about some of that politicians language and Mm. the sort of the shifty sounding non-answers that I suppose Labour should be trying to avoid at this stage when they want to look like a government in waiting and I'd be interested to hear what sort of public sentiment is about strikes at the moment because one of the reasons why They didn't want to fully oppose the rail strikes, for example, or at least some in Shadow Cabinet didn't want to, was because they wanted to keep open the prospect of supporting nurses striking when that would inevitably happen and teachers and other professions that have a bit more public sympathy. Mm -hmm. Ben, have you been looking into those polling figures at all? You're completely right. Uh, Nurses gain a lot more sympathy from voters and it's quite stark. So I've got a bit of a theory. You'll notice that 
when was the first strike? I think I asked this question at the Cambridge Louis Fest. I think it was March, April, May. I can't remember. <laughs> you know, support for the strike was only 38, 40%. And opposition to it was like 45, close to 50. Then we got to September, October, November. Support for the strike just picked opposition for the first time. But now it's drifted back a little bit. And I get the impression that, you know, over the course of the past 10, 15 or so years, when voters think of trains striking, they often think of tube strikes, strikes, if you know what I mean. They think of Bob Crow. Mm. They think of that sort of thing. And I, I do wonder if the narrative of tube workers get a decent pay, so all trade staff get a decent pay. And that's why I wonder maybe the sympathy isn't as high as perhaps for other professions. Well, anyway, here's, here's what you need to know. 40% of voters in this country support the strike by rail workers. 45% have sympathy, so it's more of a quite divided nation on it. When it comes to nurses, however, which is a bit more unanimous, I suppose, or, or overwhelming, perhaps, 71% of Britons have sympathy with the nurses striking. 60% support them striking. Notice the difference. Notice how the mm. numbers are different. Doctors as well, 65% sympathy, 54% support. Barristers, interesting enough, 19%. <laughs> I suppose that's because, you know, the majority of people hopefully don't have to use a barrister. Yeah. Considering, you know, journalists are <laughs> they're among the most um, unpopu unpopular professions, I think um, yeah, <laughs> this kind of tells us what, if we were ever considering to go on strike where we'd probably sit. Yeah. <laughs> Very annoyed that journalists haven't been included in this poll. They haven't been asked. What if journalists went on strike? Would you support <laughs> And there have been journalists oh. striking, actually. Some journalists at Reach have been on strike. Rachel, Rishi Sunak is still using this line. He used it at this week's PMQs, trying to sort of say that Labour is still at the hands of the union paymasters and Keir Starmer doesn't have control over his own MPs going on picket lines. Why does he keep saying that? I mean, it sounds to us as journalists who watch this stuff all the time like a really old sort of passe attack. But is it something that does sort of gain political traction when they use it? Considering where the country is at the minute and how many people are on strike, are about to go on strike, it, it feels really, really dated, doesn't it? Mm, it, feels, it, does. it feels like, you know, something that belongs in an entirely different election campaign rather than the one that we're about to face, which comes after, you know, a very long period of austerity, a lot of workers very, very exhausted and having to put up with terrible working conditions. On the other hand, I wonder if part of his thinking is to lay the groundwork for a situation where these strikes continue and there is some public frustration with yeah. the amount of disruption that people might have to put up with. But it's also just the Conservatives shrinking back into their base and hoping to hang on to the seats that, that they do have. Just when we run about pay, I was going to kind of bring up a little, a little point that I think often a lot of these strikes are about working conditions and come after, you know, a long pandemic where the, a lot of workers feel quite exhausted, particularly those who've been working in the public sector and who've been very relied on during COVID, particularly those in the NHS or ambulance workers or nurses who just kind of don't feel appreciated and would like a bit of kind of give in their job. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because <laughs> I think a lot of people look at, they basically look at who the worker is who's striking and then look up the average salary for that worker. And if it's higher than theirs, then they think, oh, well, you know, they should be happy with their lot. But actually a lot of this isn't about pay, mm. especially not these paramedics who many of whom I've spoken to who have spent entire shifts, you know, 12-hour shifts with one patient in the back of an ambulance outside a hospital. And for them, that's a very that's very bad working conditions because they're getting through on their radio mm. calls to go and 
drive their ambulance to people who are in immediate danger. And they can't do that because they still have to hand their patient over to the emergency department. And for them, that makes them feel like they can't do their jobs properly. One of them described it to me as as a moral injury every time that happens. Mm. And so, you know, if you think about if you're a labourer, you get injured physically at work, but this is a moral injury for them. And so that is part of the reason why they feel like they cannot continue working unless something changes. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, it's an important point, isn't it? And it's, it's one that people miss because they just look at the numbers and think, oh, well, <laughs> they might be slightly better off than me. But when they, when you think about, you know, every job is different and what what the threshold of what people are willing to cope with or able to cope with has probably been broken a few times during the pandemic. Yeah. And Ben, what do we know? Do we think that frustration with strikes, particularly if they happen uh, on the trains over Christmas, do you think that will affect the sort of public sentiment about them? I call it mood music. If the mood music is about a country in in chaos, then the government is perceived uh, to be unable to handle the chaos, to be able to, you know, counter the chaos. And and so so perceptions of competence are just, I would expect, decline already from... The, the low level it is already at. This is a thing. It's already behind on the economy by a few percentage points, 10, 15, about a few months ago. It's Labour's lead on the issue has drifted downwards a little bit because Rishi Sunak became prime minister. They are behind on competence. They're behind on the economy. They're behind on so many of the key indicators that, you know, gave the Conservative brand such a positive vibe with enough voters. They, they are in the doldrum. I know I kept saying Liz Truss was rock bottom, but the Conservative brand, is at rock bottom. And I think, you know, if you've got strike, some voters may come to the conclusion that this is, you know, oh, those lefties over there, they're problematic, you know. But I think really if the government's not handling it, if the government's Mm. presiding over a contraction in living standards and disruption on trains, at work, in the hospitals, it's going to land at the feet of the government. And the share of Britons who blame the government for a lot of these strikes, to be honest with you, is almost close to majority figures. A good number also blame the unions. I don't think many people blame the Labour Party despite uh, the <laughs> It's bad, it's going to get worse, and it's not favouring them at all. And uh, just something on nurses as well. It's worth bearing in mind nurses are still paid 2% less in real terms than they were in 2010. They haven't yeah. exactly had anything in the shape of a pay rise. And, you know, it, it's context is needed here isn't it yeah yeah absolutely it's it, that's fascinating that there's almost a complete set of numbers of people who are blaming the government for the strikes that's that's really fascinating yeah i didn't realize it was quite that high probably not a good thing to bring up at pmqs then in that case <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're listening rishi sunak all right well thanks so much both of you it's really good to be back in the studio and thanks for joining me You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Rachel Wearmouth and Ben Walker. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. And if you want to submit a question to You Ask Us, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash You Ask Us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.